I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're, you're going to a I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top like of the like She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. On 24 August 2010, in Afghanistan's Uruzgan province, Corporal Daniel Kieran changed the course of the Battle of Derapet. Over a three-hour engagement, Dan repeatedly broke from cover to identify enemy positions and draw fire away from his team, exposing himself to a numerically superior and coordinated enemy force. Dan's leadership and his willingness to put his life on the line for his team led to him being awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia, making Dan the third Australian to receive the cross in the modern era. Dan welcomed me into his home in Brisbane for this conversation about his army career, the battle that changed his life, and our nation's highest military award. I'm Alex Lloyd on a rainy day in Brisbane speaking with Dan Kieran, VC. Dan, welcome to Life on the Line. Yeah, thanks for having me. It is uh, a very wet day here in City Queensland. Uh, unfortunately, we've had some bad weather, so but thanks for coming up and uh, taking the time to speak to me. Dan, when and where were you born? Okay, so I was born in Nambour, so I am a Queenslander, uh, born on the 18th of uh, the 6th, 1983. So I'm getting older now. I'm in my, I'll call it early 30s still, you know, 35, that's still early 30s, isn't it? If you say so. <laughs> What did your parents do for a living? My parents were actually um, separated. I didn't actually meet my dad until I was about, I think it was 11, uh, for the first time. Well, the first time I remembered him anyway, but my mum worked several jobs cleaning early on. And then uh, dad sort of came back on the scene when I was, as I said, 11, 12 years old. And they, they moved to the country and they're into uh, to horses, cattle and, and started up a farm. Your father occasionally ran rodeos. He did. He ran rodeos when I was living at, at Lowmead. So as I was saying, Lowmead's about 100 kilometres north of Bundaberg. And it was, it was a virgin block when we moved up there. There was nothing there. It was trees. There's no fencing at all. And it's just 40 acres um, they had to start with. And they had a, a few other little properties as well that they used to produce cattle and, and horses on as well. But that was, look, it was a good lifestyle. It was a good upbringing, but it was a very simple upbringing. I didn't have a whole lot as a kid. When I say a whole lot, it was dirt floors, no mains power. I think um, my dad found some, some carpet at the tip and, and rolled it out over the dirt and rocks so it was you know it was one of those upbringings as a kid where i didn't have much it was a rifle and a few dogs i'd go out on the weekend and go shooting and you know i learned a lot about myself as a young fella growing up in, in conditions like that i had a uh, an older sister five years older than me but i've uh, been five years older than me she uh, she didn't really like the farm uh, life because she moved there when she was 16 and um she, you know a couple of years there and then you know she was off out of there as fast as she could possibly go so day to day you're often entertaining yourself working with cattle working with horses is, is always something to do um up at um, as soon as the sun comes up and you're in there mucking out stables or carrying water or feeding horses or livestock and and then uh, trying to run and uh, catch the school bus because i'm late from doing other things not because i was sleeping in but because i was working and, and then going to school and, and doing it all over again when you get off the bus at the end of the day so that's the life of, of what it is as a, as a kid on the farm so it was good but uh, you know i enjoyed it and when do you first look towards the military as something you might be interested in oh, look, i knew quite early on 
I would say that I was going to join the Defence Force purely because of my grandfather's influence. That's my mum's father. He was an artillery sergeant in the Second World War and had a lot of conversations about him, about his experiences. And it came down to the, the fact that there wasn't a whole heap of opportunity where I was for employment. It was I sort of worked on the farm. That's, that was the, <laughs> that's the idea after, after you sort of finished school. And I, I knew that that wasn't really for me uh, at that point in time in life. I wanted to go out there and explore and do things. I'm fortunate that my grandfather, you know, I suppose, instilled a personal ethos or core values in me that wanted me to try hard and wanted me to get out there and explore things. But do something different and defense for me was a way to, to do that and so I joined up at the age of 17. And as a side note briefly you were also a torchbearer for the Summer Olympics in 2000. I was actually yeah that's just before I uh, before I went out from my training yeah up at uh, where I was I Marion Bale for that yeah look it was great I was a Pierre de Capitan recipient so that's to do with the Olympic spirit so that was you know that was a sort of a great experience there and and I hadn't done a whole heap of traveling back then like it was from Mullaney sort of Nambour area where my, my grandparents were at Maroochydore to some, I'd never been on a plane before that I hadn't traveled much at all I'd pretty much just been in Queensland so to start getting involved and, and seeing uh, I suppose starting to see the world at that sort of age it was a great experience and put me in good stead for things later on. Coming from the 40 acres and you're opening your eyes to what lies beyond these planes and also that the army is something that can take you there. Yeah look mate it was a simple life absolutely and then you know, all these experiences that started happening. And, and that was the start of it, of, of running that, the torch relay and realizing, you know, it's, it's a much bigger world out there. So you join at 17 at the end of 2000. Mm-hmm. Tell me how your experience was, basic IETs. So I, had, I think it was about two weeks off. So I finished high school and the 5th of December was my enlistment date. So it was that three weeks off from finishing high school to pretty much, you know, getting on a bus and, and off I went. I'd already been accepted halfway through the year, which probably wasn't great for my school results, knowing that I had something to go to and a job already lined up. More productive than going on schoolies. <laughs> well, it was. So yeah, I missed out on schoolies. So I missed out on all that sort of stuff. I did spend a bit of time with my grandfather, actually, um, did a lot of fishing, guaranteed in the Marichador River. But he, I suppose, opened up to me for the first time really about some of the, I suppose, the more well, the harsh realities of war and what he'd sort of been through, which was the first time that he'd ever done that. I think it was because I'd been accepted and, and I was going down this path that I think it was his his time to sort of share those things with me. But look, it was, you know, kid of 17, I had no idea what I was getting in for. I look back now at the age of, I suppose, 35 and go, I don't, I don't think I could do it now, knowing what I know now. But back then, had no idea what I was getting into. was young, keen and, and good to go. So it was, it was an interesting trip. I, I remember getting off the bus after I got in to Brisbane, bus down to Wagga Wagga and you know, I think they were still yelling at me when I when I finished I wasn't the best recruit put it that way <laughs> so from Kapuka obviously yeah ITs so ITs for, for infantry is uh, Singleton the school of uh, infantry so uh, all the skills there shoot communicate all that sort of stuff working and fighting on fortified objectives everything else that you learn there tactics techniques procedures and then I was posted to the 6th battalion the Royal Australian Regiment uh, in Brisbane where we are today and, and I was posted there and, and remain there for all of my career I mean I was posted out for operational experiences throughout that time but I stayed there until 2011 so from 2001 all the way through to 2011 I was at 6RA in Brisbane and through 6RAR, you make your way to Malaysia. Yeah, I did so first sort of trip overseas. My first, you know, get on a plane and, and all the rest of it and adventure was, was Malaysia. Early 2000s and, and headed across and, uh, you know, working with the Malaysians, working with the Thai government uh, over there. First experience of, of different cultures and languages and, and everything else that goes with that. So that was young guy, had no idea what I was getting into. You know, you do all the briefs, you get on the plane, you get over there and you need just the, the hot, oppressive sort of uh, heat and working jungle and all those things that you hadn't experienced before. So I started to learn a lot about myself, I suppose, my skills and what sort of person that I was working in those environments and sort of strange situations. Because you do, you do learn a lot about yourself and, and I wasn't any, I was still only young, so. 18, 19? Uh, so I was 18, 17, 18, no, actually I was 19, so I just turned 19. 
So I turned 19 over there, actually. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's still a pretty young kid. I mean, most people haven't even got a job yet at the time they're 19. And here I've already been in the Defence Force for a number of years and, and doing, I suppose, international sort of trips. It was tough. Some of the conditions that we were working in and I suppose the jungle over there is different to Australia as well. And it's more about the skills that you learn on the ground and, and working as a team. Some of those things, you, you need to be put through your paces. And working in those arduous conditions is a perfect place to hone those skills and learn more about yourself, how you interact with your team. It's a great learning deployment because it's lower intensity in terms of the work you're doing but you're getting to have these first experiences of overseas and working in that team environment in that without, semi- without the risk yeah the absolutely risk, yeah. yeah i mean look you know there's no real threat over there i think that the worst threat we face i think was the uh, the crazy road rules over there that uh, and the traffic but besides from that when you're actually out on the ground with these foreign governments it, you know it's it was it's interesting to see how they operate the challenges that you face when you you have the language barriers as well so all those skills without a doubt put me in good stead for later on in life when i was deployed to places like Iraq and Afghanistan, having those, I suppose, we'll call them baby steps in working in places like that and having a feel for how they do it differently because, you know, your way is not always the right way or or the best way of, of operating. So it's, you know, it's just a learning experience back then. It was great. Well, you go through those baby steps and then the world changes. Where were you when 9-11 happened? Funnily enough, I was actually in Malaysia again for my second deployment. Well, not a deployment, but second time I was in Malaysia. I do remember being there at RCB. So I was across there again and, um, you know, it was, you know, there's talk of issuing live ammunition, you're on base, we've got the, the airstrip there, you know, everything just locked down and everyone was just glued to a TV going, what is going on, what's, what's happened? And being in a foreign country at that point in time, the world really did change. I mean, everything from searches to, to security, it, looked, it ramped up, it was very visible where I was. So I don't know what it was like in Australia, but where we were and certainly being in uniform whilst that happened, it was a bit of excitement as well. But I mean, it was quite saddening to, to see that happen at the same time uh, and to realise that or not realise, I suppose, at that point in time, the significance of that event and what was going to happen from that. Something was going to change and straight away that, you know, I wouldn't say the rumours start, but the talk starts, well, what are we going to do about this? What, what does this mean for Defence Force? What does this mean for us? So you start pondering and thinking about those questions and years later I would find myself in a rut. But that's not your next destination. First, you're deployed to Timor. I was, yes. I spent some time in East Timor supporting uh, the Timorese people, providing security. And that was challenging, I suppose, as well. Just the the conditions that I was working in 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 East Timor at the time, um, very arduous working in some some of those mountain sort of jungle areas. Lantana, that plant that's got prickles on it that just wants to cling on to your uniform and, and every time you brush past it, I swear it just wants to cut you. So, I mean, it was just, um, you know, hot and humid conditions as well. And I think I was 70 something kilos at that point in time, weighed that much and all my gear. So I, was, I had the machine gun at that point in time or, or minimum, I wouldn't call it a machine gun. And uh, mate, all my gear was weighing the same amount as what I did at that point in time. So it was tough, but I mean, it was no combat. There was no combat involved whatsoever, really. We had, we'd go out and we'd do uh, overwatch positions so we'd sit and watch across the border and, and look for smugglers and through thermal weapon sites or whatever and, and report that back but you know didn't get shot out the entire time i was there the worst thing that happened was it was a vehicle accident in relation to casualties and stuff but that's that's what it was but again i learned a lot about myself and i suppose how to inspire people sometimes because as i said it was arduous conditions a couple of occasions you know some of the guys weren't doing too well and it's more about learning about how you interact with teams and, and getting the best out of them by communicational skills that you've learned the culmination of, of a lot of things at that point in time, the realisation of a young soldier, I suppose, coming into his own. You're out there doing the job. You've been training for so long, and a number of years, I wouldn't say so long, but I've been training for a number of years at that point in time. I just got to six hour hour at Brisbane, and um, you could see the difference in those that had just got back from operations. They had something that we didn't. I mean, yeah, we, we were new, and there's always that time when you're new wherever you go, that time of um, finding it, the flow, and, and you could see that they'd been through something and experienced something and hadn't done that yet. So it was 
it was good to be part of that. I mean, you learn a lot. There's nothing like going on operations to see how everything actually works in the grand scheme of things. All those jigsaw puzzles of, of coming together to assist you with your missions or even the planning cycle that you go through whilst you're on deployment. And you don't really experience it during training. You don't have the assets and resources available often to do it the way that you actually do on operations. So that was the first time, you know, you, you've got vehicles, you've got helicopters, you've got, you know, you've got everything there to carry out a successful mission. So again, uh, I learned a lot about myself and, and my team and, and I think I'm thankful that I started off quite slow in relation to operational experience of back in Malaysia and working with foreign governments and then East Timor. And, you know, so I'm, I'm learning more about myself as a leader, as a person, honing my skills. And I'm thankful it sort of started slow and I had that opportunity rather than going straight into a place like Afghanistan as a young kid, like a lot of people have done, but they've gone in, it's their first trip overseas and you're dealing straight away with IEDs. You're dealing straight away with people trying to kill you. So for me, it was a very gradual process. Learn a lot along the way and a lot of mistakes I've avoided later on is because I'd learned that lesson when I was younger. Because you were a junior team leader by this stage. Yeah, yeah. You go back to Malaysia in 2004 and then a couple of years later you get your first Middle East deployment, Iraq. Tell me about that. So at that point in time, I was uh, one of the first courses to go through the, the PMV or the Bushmaster driver's course. So I was one of the first guys qualified. So Iraq came up and they're like, well, you know, you've, you've got the ticket to drive one of these vehicles. There weren't heaps of us around. So straight away, I was sort of earmarked to go across. I didn't go with 6RAR. I was actually posted out up to Townsville and supported 2RAR. And we went across as their, I suppose, vehicle drivers for that. And we had a contingent from 6RAR with a lieutenant looking after us. And I think there's 30 something of us that headed across drivers and crew command and we supported them it was only seven months so we started we were in the changeover operational experience over there from i think it was obg west one that went into but it was amtg four i think it was that we went across there and it sort of switched halfway from camp smithy where we were in Almathana province and we came to talil which is the massive american air base there where i don't know tens of thousands of people there i don't know there's people everywhere i'm not sure how many people are there but it's yeah it was crazy the scale of what the americans go to war that was my sort of first experience of of that as well and, and seeing how many people around the assets and fixed wing stuff coming in all over the place so it was a bit of an eye-opener as well flying in there then going out to a little patrol base which i'd seen in, in east timor then you, you see how the americans do it and, and you, there's mcdonald's there and there's you know there's like what is going on am i actually in a war zone and you realize that you are pretty quickly once you get that front gate and, and you see the devastation of, of what's been happening there and ieds and burnt out wrecks of cars on the side of the road and even the devastation within the towns as well from bombing runs and stuff. So you're in this little area that if you don't leave, you wouldn't have a clue what's outside unless you get indirect fire or something like that. It's, it's just a strange world of, well, relatively safety, I suppose, depends who you talk to, to then going outside and, and actually seeing what it's like. Are there any of those times driving through in the Bushmaster that really stand out in your memory? For me, well, it was my first, first combat experiences over there, like when someone was generally trying to kill me and having a proper crack at it. First time I was sort of shot at was, was actually indirect. I was fueling up one of the vehicles and I was in base and it was, I think it was 107, came in and, and slammed into the ground, not that far from where I was fueling up. It, you know, wasn't by no means was it a direct hit and I was inside and I was safe, but the overpressure, I think it took a bit of paint off the side of the, the, the Bushmaster as well, but it was... That was my first like, okay, yeah, there is, you know, that was my first experience of seeing someone of them actually targeting me or targeting the base in general. And from there, don't get me wrong, I always knew it was pretty serious. But then from there, you know, the lessons learned, they really started flooding in going, you know, this, you know, you can get killed here quite quickly if you're not doing the right thing. And then from there, not probably two, three weeks later, we got into a direct engagement with terrorist element over there. Uh, that lasted for about, I think, 30 to 40 minutes for the solid engagement of two opposing forces coming together and, you know, fixed wing assets coming in. They had the labs there that didn't fire, but there's a whole range of manoeuvre elements coming in to, to support this, this operation. 
I was commander of the vehicle uh, this particular day and I was on the Mark 58. So the first time I'd actually fired my weapon at someone in contact and that was, goodness, what was that one? Six years after I joined. So six years into my career, it was the first sort of combat experience that I had. Well, you talked about how in Rifle Company Butterworth in Malaysia and then in Timor, you're testing how these units, how the leadership, the teamwork all coalesces when you're actually utilizing those skills. How does that change again when you're in combat? I mean, it doesn't. That's the thing. Like, I mean, there's a sense of, don't get me wrong, you, the adrenaline kicks in, all the rest of it. But it's, you start, I think you really start thinking about your surroundings and I think your brain just works faster in relation to making decisions. I wouldn't say snap decisions, but all that experience that you've had, it allows you, it gives you the ability to go, well, for me, and I had three other vehicles around me and we were covering each other by firing when we had people dismounting. And you know, it's just a combination of everything you've been taught and learned. And it just, it just goes, things just fall into place. You don't take shortcuts. You, you know, you do what you need to do. And if you have to put the body on the line, you do that to make sure that you're covering your mates and you're looking after everyone. I got recognized actually for that combat. It was just a, a unit sort of citation, whatever the hell it was, award of something. Um, it was just an internal thing, but it was my peers acknowledging that I'd gone above and beyond to assist them. That was pretty special for me because that's at the end of the day, that's all I ever really cared about. I didn't you know, care about anything else. It's, as long as your mates and your team have got your back and when they acknowledge you, you know, I suppose a high pressure environment like that. For me, that's, that was pretty special. So it was, I mean, that was, I suppose, a highlight. Yeah, there's plenty of things happened to that trip, but for your peers to acknowledge you, for me, that's, you know, that's pretty special. And how do you feel at the stage when you're coming home from Iraq? Because you're 23, 24, you've been in the army six years, and that's a significant personal growth period for any young person that age. Then multiply that by the fact that you're in the military and going through all these significant experiences, and it's the end of your first combat operational deployment. So that, yeah, I mean, that was strange. So Rockall, those people are aware, I mean, you, if you're in country for over, you know, I think six month mark, I'll give you a few weeks off in between or whatever it is, 10 days off. So this is so bizarre and it happened again later on in, in my Afghan to a I, you know, in country in Iraq one day and we're out dealing with an IED, so with a British call sign and they were there defusing these bombs around the side of the road and I think one a vehicle had just been hit so you've still got a burnout car throughout the road, you've got guys defusing a bomb. The next day I'm flying out and I'm in Amsterdam, I think within sort of 36 hours having some time off to, you know, a week sort of in, in Europe up to, to Ireland and I come back and the next day I think we're within... 24 hours of being back in Iraq, there's bullets striking the outside of my, my PMB. Like it's just, it is bizarre to go from the high environments and operation to freedom in a way, going, I can make my own decisions for, for this 10 day period, to socializing and relaxing, just straight back into it. That's just the most bizarre thing that I've ever been through. And again, as I said, it happened later on uh, in Afghanistan. And then it was, I think I went across to the States. I was in, in Las Vegas one day, then the next day I'm, I'm back in Afghanistan. It's bizarre. It's hard to describe. You just can't describe the feeling of, of going from a place like that, then back into a sort of a combat situation. Um, no easing into it, just sort of straight into it again. Do you have any personal goals for your career at this point or you're just seeing where the journey takes you? No, not really. I mean, I think I, uh, <laughs> for me, I, I was avoiding promotion there for many, many years, purely from the fact it was a numbers game for me as, as a Lance Corporal, as a digger, there was more spots available with the qualifications that I had for deployment. So that was my goal is to, to go across overseas. I enjoyed it. I'm not shy to admit that I, I enjoyed that sort of side of it, enjoyed the combat, enjoyed the, the being away. So it was, um, for me, it was, what's that next, what's the next trip on the horizon? So I was sort of looking for the next trip and, and by this stage, Afghanistan was a possibility. So back in the early days, I mean, it was, unless you're a special forces, you weren't there, but all of a sudden Iraq's gone and you're like, well, hang on a minute, we've got guys now going and guys and girls going to, to Afghan. And I had a remarkably quick turnaround from getting back from Iraq 
and then heading across to Afghanistan supporting uh, special operations guys over there. So I was, a, again, that Bushmaster ticket got me another trip overseas and uh, I was a driver for them for, it was just under six months. I think it was just on six months. I think it was a day short of six months. So they didn't have to give me the rockle. But uh, yeah, it was, it was another six months tour. This time in Afghanistan, a completely different threat to what I was facing in Iraq. So you're driving out special operations task groups out to drop them off from them to start a patrol, something like that? Yeah, doing a, a range of operations with them, supporting direct action that they were doing. We spent a lot of time out, a lot of time out on the vehicles. I wouldn't say weirdest, some of the longest hours that I've ever worked, as in driving, you know, you're driving all night and then it's summer and it's 50 degree heat and you're trying to, trying to rest somewhere and you don't get any sleep. You're trying to hide under the Bushmaster in the shade. And I remember one day I was in there and one of the um, one of the dogs that I had with us, <laughs> he's in there and clearly didn't want me under the vehicle with him. So, you know, you're out in the sun the dogs under under the <laughs> under the car i'm like no worries mate so um but you know that's just a bizarre bizarre experience i i lost i really lost 15 kilos and that's purely just from the work work right over there but uh you know we were there to do a job so that you know it was good to be able to support whichever way we could what's it like then driving a bushmaster and you're driving it in afghanistan and there's this ever-present ied threat Look, strangely enough, uh, that was, I'm oh going to say, you have to correct me with the, the dates, but that was early on in the piece, right? It was, IEDs were there, but they weren't, it was nothing like Iraq. They hadn't crept in yet. Well, they had, but it wasn't the threat. Our threat, predominantly at that point in time, was was a shoot threat. Like they were, they were keen to fight, keen to shoot at you. Occasionally there was IEDs, but when we didn't have engineers back then really doing what they were doing, it just wasn't a thing because we hadn't taken any casualties at that point in time. So, goodness, we got shut up all the time, but... There was a lot of, as I said, high tempo period, a lot of combat that the boys were in. First time, I think it was nearly sun up to sundown. So someone was trying to shoot at you during the whole day. Like it was a full, you know, it was like a 10 hour sort of engagement back and forward with B1s coming in, dropping 500 pounders all over the place. And it just continues throughout the day sort of thing. So, and then, you know, then you've got to stay up all night sort of thing, doing pickets or after this. I mean, it was, it was a high tempo sort of period of long hours, but you know, it was great. Loved it. So when do you fall into a place where you are just, totally relaxed the training kicks in did you feel that from day one in iraq or was it something that built up over time your mental resilience to just focus on the task my upbringing as a kid i think my mental resilience has been pretty good and i think that's important for me it was and that's how i i reckon i've stayed pretty calm over the years is those experience that i had early on and having to wouldn't say having to fight for everything but sort of put me in a good place i think quite suited to a, a military lifestyle or a military environment it was a, a good career choice for me, I suppose, to go into something like that. I wasn't truly capable of handling the mental stresses. And I can honestly say right now, all these years later, I'm still fine. I've never had any issues from my service. And I, I'm one of the lucky ones that I'm thankful for that. And I think it was some of that mental resilience that I built up as a kid and then going forward. But hopefully that stays the way it is. So you've got plenty of high tempo situations over there. What are some of the funnier, lighter moments you guys use to decompress? Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about them actually. No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, the decompression, it's, it's, I wouldn't say decompression. It's for me, training. So going to the gym, running, whatever back then. And, you know, you need to keep active, keeping, you know, you can't just sit around. So for me, that's, that was my, my way of dealing with everything, I suppose, is getting into the gym and getting stuck in. And, and that was a, a good way of doing it, I think. Give your mind a different task. Yeah, look, absolutely. No, we got some, we did get some downtime as well on my first Afghan trip, but it was out all the time. It was high tempo. We were out all the time. And we'd be out for weeks and then didn't shower for two, three weeks, sort of thing, which is normal but just living in that environment in the desert sort of thing and then guys going out on patrol and moving to the next location and just night after night just doing it again and again and again well when the repetition of that becomes such a normality for you does coming home then in the civilization we have here feel quite bizarre look there's don't get me wrong there is an adjustment period i think anyone says there's not is is bloody lying but my 
adjustment period I know is quite short compared to others that I've spoken. I've spoken about this with my mates and that, and I think that's the trouble we're talking about mental health issues. And it's some of those some of those gents and ladies don't um, get past that period of, of getting back to what's norm. And that's how I look at it. And I've been fortunate, but there's been a couple of weeks. It takes one or two weeks where you're not not suspicious of every single person or you know you, you hear about stories of, of people walking into the room and they want to sit in the corner so they can see everything and i mean that, you know that's true that sort of stuff happens or, or you're looking for ieds on the side of the road and you're like hang on idiot i'm in australia going down the m1 or something like there's no there's not gonna be an idea like that happens but the two-week period and i'm like oh, no, i'm all good again it's you know you're, you're back in australia i'll be safe but I've spoken to some of my friends and, you know, it happens occasionally, you know, six months later um, and we just laugh about it going, you know, because you're so used to that environment and that's what you get used to. It's funny what the norm becomes. By this point, have you had any key lessons of leadership from either an experience where you've been the leader or following someone else? Oh, look, yeah, thousands by this point in time. Look, I mean, it's hard to, to get into the key thing. I mean, lessons learnt along the way. Look, that's tough. I mean, it's a combination of, of your training and, and experience and, and seeing what works and every single situation is different. I mean, the fog of war is the thing where it kicks in. You never know what another human being is going to do. And, and certainly when someone's trying to kill you, what lengths they'll go to or how devious they are, or you just can't plan stuff once that first shot rings out. But I think for me, that ability to remain calm absolutely important the ability to take stock of what's going on around you then come up with a and formulate a plan when all hell is breaking loose i think it's, it is a good skill that somehow i've mastered i wouldn't say mastered somehow i i became good at where you know there's bullets coming in all the rest of it I wouldn't say it doesn't worry me but it's nearly like i can block it out and then look at the big picture and assess what's going on then make an informed decision rather than just making a decision and, and hoping it's the best sort of thing is to actually have a bit of a plan to to assess what's happening and and then to, to go forward so i think i've been lucky in that regard and i think it comes from experience but uh i'm not sure it's just the way my sort of brain works as well in january 2009 the world learns the name mark donaldson and for the actions he performed in september 2008 he became the first australian of the modern era to receive a victoria cross at that time, what did the Victoria Cross mean to you? I've been asked that before in relation to not Mark Donaldson's award, actually, because I do remember seeing it. You know, it's a massive thing. It's been the first one since... Since 1969. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But funnily enough, I was in uh, Paula Vela when I went through Kapuka all the way back in, you know, in my first first experience in defence. And funnily enough, there's a citation of Albert Jacker directly across from where I used to run out to the hallway every morning with my bedsheet over my shoulder. So I was aware going through a platoon like that and and every single citation or photo on the wall was a vc recipient and really learning about the award and, and what it means so for me i think i was had more of an idea than some people in relation to the significance of it but yeah marks was was a special occasion I remember sort of i think it was taping it I taped it somewhere or and and watched it later on like his investiture and it was a massive deal i think the defense community stopped to to take stock of what had happened and and to listen to his experiences and you know it was, it was a sort of special day for mark but i think for defense as well going oh well they're still nominating people for these awards you know it was this will never sort of happen again even with what was going on we we sort of thought that anyway you go back to afghanistan in 2010 talk to me about that deployment up until late august that deployment was a strange deployment when i say strange it was you know you often go go across and you may not change roles often you're going there to do a job right i think i had several jobs throughout that deployment of pmv driver to commander to acting platoon sergeant at one time to i don't know something like i was just all over the place to collecting vehicles outfitting them to get them back in into the rotation comm stuff all these little random jobs and then supplying doing road runs out supplying um all of the patrol bases as well for the first number of months as well so it went really quickly because i think it was 
the pressure was on all the time. You know, you didn't get into fall into a, the routine. There was no routine really. It was every day was something different. Or we're going out today, we're out for two days, or we're going out for a week, but then we're in, then I'm, you know, flying off somewhere else. So it was just, it was fascinating in a way, but it, it flew. The deployment just absolutely disappeared on me for that first part. Because you're 10 years in the army or so, a corporal, you're very experienced by this point. I wouldn't say very experienced, but I had a bit of an idea. Yeah, I, I was lucky. And I think later on that obviously not just me, but the platoon group that I ended up with, all of the section commanders, you know, all had 10 years up in like our platoon side and very experienced as well. So very, very fortunate that we had no real young, young sort of commanders. And that's not a bad thing, but it, for us, I think it was, it was a good thing in, in relation that we had that experience. Uh, and we were fortunate to have that because we ended up meeting it later on with some of the situations that we got into. Dan, walk me through the events of 24 August 2010. Well, I'd have to take you back a couple of days, actually, um, to the lead up to that. So we'd, we'd been sent out to patrol base Anna Joy. Again, my role changed again. I, I had slipped into a mentor role now, so my seventh sort of position out there. So I was there to assist to train the Afghan National Army to get them to the standard to look after, I suppose, the security of their own country. That was my little job and that was carved out for me to do that was, was Anna Joy. And, and Derapit was a village that fell within that area of operations. We had French Foreign Legion guys out at this little patrol base. Uh, Dutch forces were pulling back. So we got out to this place and... Let's just say there wasn't much there. It reminded me of home as a kid, right? There was, you know, you know, dirt floors, you had a generator out there. I think they had 12 people out there. I could be wrong. And then obviously us being Australians, we ended up with about 24 out there. Didn't have the bedding to, to accommodate that. And as Aussies do, we made it work. And it was, you know, very tight sort of living conditions, but we made it work. So we didn't really know what the threat was out there because they hadn't really patrolled sort of forward of a certain northing, meaning they'd gone down, they'd done VCPs, vehicle checkpoints, so they'd done some searches and stuff, but they never really actively patrolled. They said, hey, if you go past this point, you're going to get shot at. They'd also taken a couple of casualties not that long ago uh, with a vehicle. So by this time, the ID threat is absolutely insane. It's right. They're there everywhere. There's IDs everywhere. And they'd lost uh, lost a number of coalition forces. The Soskin vehicle got hit just 200 metres from where the patrol base was. So they... You know, that the end of their tour, they're going home, government's pulling them out. So they weren't actively or aggressively patrolling the area. So we had no real idea what we were getting into. Um, and we did a, an Australian-only patrol uh, on the 22nd of August, so two days before. 20 Australian soldiers, we went out. That was basically our entire team of soldiers there. We had a, um, it wasn't a gun car, but we had a PC with us, 50 on it, that was out there supporting us for a bit of extra firepower as well. And we also had two gun cars, or we had a, I think, Victor 1-1. So we had a, a call sign of, of labs come out and support us as well. Sure enough, we got into to Derapit in the valley itself and we'd gone patrolling through the village and um, you know the people were out and we were speaking to them and talking to the kids. And sure enough, we got into contact with two Taliban or two enemy fighters. And I think we were quite fortunate, we are quite lucky this particular day that we'd been patrolling along a certain axis and sort of down an aqueduct. And for whatever reason, we decided to change our direction, as you do occasionally. Aqueducts are usually easier to walk down in relation to not having to worry so much about IEDs. Don't get me wrong, they're still possibly there in the water, but it's it's harder to, to do that with water flowing. So it's an easier method is to patrol down the, these aqueducts at that point in time. And we'd cut right out of this aqueduct and then we cut left again and, and sure enough we got the drop on these two guys so our two lead scouts actually saw these people set up ready to, to ambush us so we're sort of lucky there our two front guys took that course of action and we got the drop on these guys and, and sort of a, a small firefight ensued but it wasn't really a different engagement but they were in a well-prepared position probably i'd say 10 or 11 engagements shootouts had been in up until that point troops in contact sort of situations so that team was experienced enough and, and we sort of Bit of a firefight happened there. We had the labs roll up and shoot a few rounds and that they couldn't get the elevation, unfortunately, to suppress some 
we knew straight away that there was enemy forces there just by how they reacted to contact and how professional they were with how they broke contact. It was drills. It wasn't just random two farmers having a crack. Like There was something a little bit different about that, how they reacted to us engaging them, uh, which sort of got us thinking a little bit that these guys might be a little bit more professional and what we experienced up until that point in time. So two days later, the 24th of August, the idea was to do a clearance mission. Um, it was a KLE, so it was a clear engagement. So you go and find the leader of the village and sit down with him, as well as a sort of a, a clearance of the village itself. Presence patrol slash, you know, it's a whole range of missions in one on this particular day. And we're very fortunate, you know, the amount of planning that goes into these ops, not to get into the details. We had the gun cars available to us. We had QRF available. They had sent out another a platoon to act as cutoff and provided us with a an extra section of guys as well to bolster our numbers, which was um, 4-3 Charlie, their call sign, as well as we had extra snipers come out and had a couple of teams of joint fire uh, or tactical controllers as well jtax with us as well so you know it was a very well planned sort of operation and the idea is we had engineers and would search the plan change actually the idea was to search in our, our gun cars and where they can provide overwatch and fire support if required the next day the idea was to search them at night or just before night but they couldn't end up getting the cars in just because of the amount of strikes so they're getting false hits as they were um, searching low light sort of came down like no it's not worth it so they pulled the vehicles back and they had to do it the next morning first light to, to get them in so they get across to this hill where this ied uh, strike happened before we got to this area hence the, the caution in making sure it was done right and they had a uh, they noticed as they were clearing into the, the location television clearly had a an eyeball on us because we saw droves of women and children or they reported droves of women and children leaving the village itself which is not unusual i'd seen it before in my last deployment and you know you, you see stuff it's a combat indicator potentially something's going to happen women and kids leaving the area there's no males with them or fighting age males with them so it was an indication that something was going to happen so that searching took a long time again with all those false hits so our sort of schedule was a little bit behind but the engineers came back to our location on patrol base Enjoy. well they married up sorry uh, with us as we patrolled out so it was about 20 australian soldiers as the 20 afghan national army soldiers that we took with us and um, we always tried to put that afghan face on it you know it's, it's their country they're they're patrolling they're leaving this because they needed to do it when we left the country and as we got down to the bottom of the hill that we were uh, on top of we married up with 4-3 charlie the, the section uh, that was provided to us for extra protection security uh, the remainder of their call signs sort of spread out as a like a cutoff position in case something happened they were in a position where they could react um, if required on top of a hill um, we had a quick sort of set of orders and uh, from there we stepped off to this clearance and uh, we're walking through the village nothing really happened like, we didn't see anyone they were all gone all the doors are shut no women kids out a few dogs kicking fleas lying around that was about it and we're about three quarters of the way through the village and we we're sort of like single scattered sort of file and i think i jumped on the radio to the boss and said hey we we need to get a bit more aggressive with our posture here because i feel that something's about to happen so i was quite fortunate again it comes with experience right that this doesn't feel right i mean we've been like this before so we changed our method of our patrolling forward so we slowed down we spread out we had a uh, the section fall through charlie about 500 meters behind so we changed it up a little bit and i'm sort of thankful that we did because we got round one of the last buildings in the village itself and then came under machine gun fire um, straight away and we had two afghan soldiers that went up onto this sort of on the hill they didn't crest the hill but slight to my slight right so as i've come around the building i see bullets strike the building beside me to the left sort of thing sort of kick out dirt and dust as they do when they come in and then um I had two australian soldiers in front of me there was an aqueduct that they moved forward to so they they could see what was going on there and they started they started assaulting forward that was the idea is to, to assault forward and, and get the jump on, on what was happening 
straight away I, I thought well there's no point me going forward when there's a hill right beside me to my left hand side there was corn crops and dope so the marijuana crop and it was high that time of year it was six seven foot high so this provides great cover you know enemy forces or, or even us could move all the way through that with relative cover you would never know they're there and then right on top of you so but i'm not heading that way I'm, I'm heading up to the top of the hill so i pretty much ran straight up the top of this hill i thought i was in relative cover purely because i thought the contact was in front over the hill forward sort of 80 to 100 meters but it turned out so i got to the top of the hill and clearly gone too far because uh, i exposed myself too far straight away because as soon as i got up there the whole hill was erupted in dirt and dust as bullets start coming in and it wasn't just that one position so up until that point we thought it was a typical maybe four or five guys that's all we'd never really face we'd never i'd never even hit any more than 10 people the entire trip that i'd been there that particular trip as soon as i got to that top of the hill I could clearly see several locations that were engaging you know there was probably 50 people already in position waiting for us in a sort of an ambush style as as we got into contact so so i got to the hill that bloke's 80 100 meters in this aqueduct has obviously seen on the hill and started firing at me across my left so there's like a river as well separating us not separating us but a river separating the rest of the, the village and it was it was in part well you wouldn't pass it, it was a, considered a major obstacle if you got in there you'd get killed trying to, trying to get across there's just no cover whatsoever but probably 300 meters to my left hand side several locations there were firing at me on top of the hill so i had a um their angle of fire coming across where my position was and then more locations further probably five six hundred meters down the valley started shooting at me as well and to my right hand side there was a, another feature or a mountain uh, and to this day i have absolutely no idea how someone would have got up there just it was sheer cliff face nearly and Somehow there was someone up there firing down, and I knew there was someone up there because of the, the trajectory of the rounds. Like you can see the round, but you can see how it was hitting the dirt and dust in front of you and kicking up, and you're like, that's coming from, from up somewhere, coming down. So straight away, uh, the idea was the labs were to hold um, for a while if, if we got into contact and uh, set ourselves out and establish what we had. But straight away, they, they rolled up and started firing pretty much straight away. And I was very thankful for that because they neutralized that target on that mountain within minutes um, of that happening. Because if you had to stay up there and, and had free reign, uh, it would have seriously done some damage up there. Uh, so from there, I mean, it, it sort of kicked off. We consolidated. We tried to work out what we had. I remember getting on the radio going, boss, this is, uh, this is pretty, this is big. Like something's going on here. There is enemy combatants absolutely everywhere. From there, just due to our location on the ground and the terrain, we were already sort of committed. Like it would have been at that point in time probably more dangerous to, to pull back than it was to assault forward, which may seem strange to some people, but that's just the lay of the land and how we ended up. The idea was to assault forward. And let's be honest, we had the firepower, we had the vehicles, we had support from the Americans, we had fixed wing assets, we had a power, you know, we had the works. So why not? Let's, let's have a crack at this. It was Afghan led. They were keen to resolve this and, and clear this village out as well. So the call was to assault forward, and, and that's what we did. I stayed on that hill for that first half an hour where I was and had a, a young Lance Jack well and truly monitoring everything behind and doing an exceptional job of, of getting people up and resupplying people. And I ended up with most of the Afghan forces in my location. Everyone with a machine gun pretty much was in my location providing support by fire or if they had an RPG or a, a GLA sort of thing to be able to lob stuff down into the enemy locations. I will say now, right, one of the funny, funniest things that's ever happened in combat was that particular day when I'm on this hill with no interpreter with two Afghans with RPGs and here I am in, a, in combat like there's, there's rounds coming in I'm on the ground on my, on my belly as rounds are sort of skidding along the ground around me and I'm trying to explain to this bloke with an RPG what I need him to fire at 
because there's clearly a target there that they're using and you know i've seen the muzzle flash i know that's where they are and i've got a you know i've got a bloody star on me so i'm like you get your rpg and you shoot at this location i'm trying to point it out i'm using rocks and i'm going you know this is the target this is the building i need you to you know fire your rpg and it needs you know i'm throwing my rock on the ground to to simulate the rpg going off and making noises <laughs> i'm like you know boom and i'm like it mate it was just absolutely unbelievable this is like action comedy oh mate it was, it was hilarious at that point in time and then uh yes yeah, sort it of looks at me after he fires and he missed by he missed by something i missed by 100 meters i think but anyway it was but did just, he miss because he missed or because he didn't know where you wanted him to go he didn't know where i wanted to go clearly i wasn't explaining it probably because the second one was pretty much on target so it's not as if he wasn't good shot it was just one of those bizarre moments that I sort of look back now going, what the hell was I even trying to do whilst I was still under fire? But I mean, that was you know, sort of half an hour in sort of one of those strange things. How does the battle continue from there? Well, it goes downhill. From there, it's about 30 minutes in-ish. 4-3 Charlie, the, the team that was providing rear security, uh, has pushed up to our location. And when I say pushed up, they've ran 500 metres-ish through aqueducts. So they're doing high knees as you do in the surf. It's summer. I think I was carrying 40, 40 kilos-ish, everything, radios, all that crap you have. They're like, that's heavy. And it's pushing 50 degrees already that time of the morning. That team got to our location and they pushed up on that the hill roughly the, the very first little bit that I went up when I first only got killed. So they got onto that location and they weren't there. They were they were only there a matter of seconds when a mate of mine, Lance Corporal Jared McKinney, got hit. And it came over the, the radio and he was probably 50... 50 to 60 meters to my left hand side and i mean it's open like it's it's bloody open hill but kind of on the reverse side of it many have got some cover from bullets coming in they're striking the, the hill in front so they're not really you have a few coming over the top and obviously if they're shooting high you hear them sort of zip over your head you've got a pretty low profile making sure that they don't really get a good good hit on you but unfortunately because of the lay of the land they were sort of coming like I wouldn't say flanking us but nearly flanking us on the left hand side or they were trying to flank us on the left hand side you get the sort of that unflawed fire happening again and that's what's obviously happened in this case. They've sort of got round to our left flank a little bit and this guy across, I suspect is where it's come from, across the river, some three, 400 metres away, has managed to get rounds on target and, um, and hit him in the arm. I remember it coming over the, the call over the, the radio. Oh, he's been hitting the, hit the left arm. Now, I didn't think much of it. I mean, that's strange, but I mean, you, you get shot somewhere. You don't, I suppose you don't really think about uh, getting shot in the arm as a serious kind of shot. I mean, that's what went through my head straight away. It's like, oh, he's been, you know, whatever. You, it's not to the torso. No, no, that's what I mean. Like, that's straight away. I was like, oh, no, he'll be fine. It wasn't even a concern. Wouldn't even say it really nearly even registered just because, oh, he's been hit in the arm. I'm like, oh, well, he's got guys there. They'll sort him out. I remember sort of glancing over, I've got Afghan soldiers there making sure that they're not firing on our guys that are assaulting forward. So they're still moving forward slowly, very, very slow through the aqueduct. There's so much cover, you know, the battle pairs moving forward, covering each other as they're going forward to try and clear these guys out. But it happened quite quickly. I remember looking over again and there was a number of people around around him and his mate was sort of lying, lying in the dirt and the dust on his back on top of this hill. And they were clearly exposed. The Taliban had managed to start the flankers on the left-hand side and we had our labs engaging. But we also had a, a young fella who was bloody exceptional. He jumped out of the back of, of one of the labs and we could see the, the rounds detonated. I had no idea what it was at that point in time. But he jumped out and he grabbed one of the 84s, Kalkulskov rifles, and he, he was firing 84 airburst and preventing that happening. So this one young guy was doing one-man drills in the dirt and dust on, on the hill some 800 metres back in his location. And without his actions that day as well, I'll tell you right now, it would have been a lot more trouble as well. So he was he was dealing with that situation. But I remember looking over and, and seeing people working on him straight away and, and I thought, that's strange. Like It was just like he's been shot in the arm. That didn't really compute at that point in time. And it only took another 10, 15 seconds to realise that they were in trouble. Someone started doing uh, CPR. I think it was one of the engineers we had was, was crouched over the top of him 
on the hill doing compressions on the hill and i remember seeing rounds coming in there'd been a lot of rounds coming in and they were most of them were soaked up in front of that hill as i said but this time they pretty much had them someone was was on and was firing and had them in their sights and you could see the just the fall of the machine gun pattern pretty much right around them i thought it the whole team's about to get killed this this whole group of guys as they're on their belly this one guy you know i know who it was but i won't name him but he's you know here he is on his knees on top of this hill just not oblivious to the danger but he's he's ignoring it himself going you know he's just trying to work on his mate and they're trying to sort of drag him off the hill at the same sort of time as i've looked again someone's grabbed him by the helmet and, and ripped his helmet down as he's you know leaning on top of him and as he's done that a burst of machine gun fire went straight through where he's like where his chest was and I thought, these guys, all of them are about to die if someone doesn't do something. At that point in time, you know, we had guys doing 84 drills. We had um, had a team of mortars that never fired. Well, I know why they didn't fire. It's just we didn't have clear identified targets at that point in time. And there's still people living in the area. But we had everything available to us firing at that point in time. We had our labs firing 25 mil. We had 50 up there firing. We had you know, a couple of snipers with us within the team as well, trying to identify and engage targets. Um, we had our JTAC there as well. But I had to do something. Like I, I deemed it uh, me, myself. I mean, I was in charge of that team. So I came up with a, a plan. And I remember having an Australian gunner. He was, as a young fellow, did an exceptional job that day as well to my right-hand side and sort of have a, a, a sort of a quick conversation going, I'm going to draw fire away. I'm going to do something. I'm going to have to try and do something here. Because currently what we were doing wasn't working. So I remember sort of standing up and sort of taking a few steps forward and started sort of moving to my right-hand side. And it's, I suppose it's a strange sort of feeling, a strange sound when a bullet travels past your head. For those that, that haven't had that experience or haven't done it when you're in the range or something, it's like a, it's like a crack of a whip. And the closer and closer that it gets, uh, it changes sound, essentially. And you know, I could hit the, like, the cracks. They're just insane uh, all around me sort of thing, just intensifying. So clearly I knew they were shooting at me. I knew, I knew they'd seen me and they started engaging me. I suppose there's two reasons that I did this. One was to try and give the team the ability to help my mate and to get him off the hill, not under fire. And the second was to identify targets so we could start bringing to bear some of the fire support that we had. By this stage, I think we had a couple of fixed wing assets coming in, had them lined up. We had the mortars, as I said, there's a couple of Apaches in the area as well. So the idea was to let's get these guys targeted. As soon as I started running and there's bullets hitting the ground in front of me, then there's sort of behind me that I'm committed anyway. So I kept going a probably 40 to 50 meter-ish run, which is bloody, it's a long time. It feels like a long time when you're, when you're carrying that much gear. I'll be honest, the adrenaline was up at that point in time. And I've sort of come back off the hill, like a triangle, I suppose, and got a bit of cover and ran back up again. And I sort of remember looking over and uh, I sort of going, is it working? Oh, no, he said, it's, uh, it's working. And I said, yeah. Like I gave him, yeah, no, no shit, it's working. <laughs> but I remember looking over again and, it was like it was i suppose it's like i know like a garden hose from watering the, the garden with bullets and it sort of switched to me and, and chased me along the hill and sort of gave him a bit of time as well but i ended up doing that a number of times to assist with the the Kazavak, the evacuation and, and to assist with trying to identify them so we can start dropping bombs because that's the thing that you did not just do this run once you ran back and back and back and kept going yeah so there was four in total so i should matter should be dead for doing that to start with and i get a lot of people asking did you expect to get shot i look i, I hoped well no i kind of did look i justify it by this i had plates in front and back there was kind of bloody heavy plates back then as well the armor piercing ones for some reason so i wasn't worried if i got hit on one of the plates like i was very confident in my equipment i knew there's a chopper already coming right so i hoped i'd get hit in one of the plates if not they could throw on the helicopter with my friend but i knew i had to do something uh, if i didn't they were going to die that's how i looked at it and so i acted and I'm very conscious of the fact if I had got hit, well, then it would have taken more people out of the contact as well. Absolutely, you know, it could have been a terrible idea, but that's one of those things where you have to make a decision, you have to go with it. But very conscious if I had got shot as well, it would have taken more soldiers out and gone absolutely to shit after that. But, you know, it worked. It was one of those things that actually worked. Um, I was fortunate enough not to get hit. 
But then I think on the fourth one, I've sort of run back and assisted, sort of helped to, to run across and started organising an LZ and go to another other guys and, and doing a bit of a clearance. And, you know, there's so much going on, so many working parts to it, as well as trying to assist with, with the Catholic as well and, and assist with the first aid. So while this is all going on, you've still got enemy soldiers or whatever, Taliban fighters trying to kill you, and then you've still got our snipers engaging and still providing target indications. And so it doesn't stop just because you've got a casualty. Everything's still going on as well as trying to deal with this situation that's unfolding as well. But, you know, it was a bit of a bit of a shit fight to try and get the, the chopper in just due to the train where we where he ended up landing was nearly a courtyard uh, and he had absolutely no clearance between the rotors and the wall like this uh, american pilot just banged it in there bounced it in there pretty much um and ran out a couple of times and, and managed to get it in it was later weeks later one of the, one of our soldiers had an opportunity to talk to that crew and they said they'd never seen anything like it when they came in they knew it was hot lz but uh and we're flying over the top of the hill and they see our labs on so two young cars firing at a wall and behind this wall is probably 10 15 Taliban, all with you know machine guns all the rest all lined up behind this wall and it's just 25 mil slamming into the wall as they're behind it sort of taking cover and then seeing all of us lined down on the hill all firing you know tracer going in they'd never seen the amount of Taliban on enemy movement and they'd been flying for a long time been doing a lot of operations so it was interesting to see how i suppose how serious it was because we knew on the ground <laughs> bullets coming back we knew there's blacks everywhere shooting at us just the weight of fire uh, we knew it was pretty serious but getting that elevated perspective going you know this is what was sort of happening as we rolled in highlights how dangerous the situation was so how does the battle wrap up another two and a half hours so we managed to get him out of there on the chopper back to terrancourt and uh another two and a half to three hours ish after that what's that like just on your i mean is adrenaline keeping you going that length of time no look it doesn't it peaks and troughs of that ran out of water at some point you know it's hot i think i think i had three liters that day but i did so much running i had my gps on they're like 24 k's or something like back and forward along this hill you hit your step goal for the day oh that was insane it was just you know just making sure that all my soldiers are doing the right thing and, and having that element of afghan soldiers there that they didn't speak english ensuring that they were not firing on our soldiers as they were moving forward through the aqueduct and through the greenery like it was you know i had a real i had a tough job in that relation of, of i had a bloody a close eye on them put it that way few lulls here and there and this young young private that i had with me that was i suppose my battle buddy without a doubt an outstanding job but you speak to the other guys from that combat and it was and it was a strange where there was you know there was several different things going on there was me on the hill you've got the labs over here the fire support element we had snipers further back in our patrol base unfortunately they couldn't really do a heap that day just because of the, the visibility and stuff but there was there was several little groups and they all had their own little battle and all had their own little thing going on within this i suppose broader engagement with the taliban sort of fighters that day so it sort of finished when we were sort of running low on ammunition but we got to the end of the village and it came back essentially what we were trying to achieve going forward we're trying to clear them out we're trying to you know we're trying to follow them up and the river being there uh, being a major obstacle it came down to a risk factor it just wasn't worth the risk of, of pushing across open ground and a river Towards the end of it, we ended up having Apaches finally got there and started doing strafing runs. So they ran dry. We ended up having a, an artillery sort of engagement later on, but it, I mean, it was very late, the combat side of it. And I'm, I'm not sure why it was so late. We need to clear air, clear ground, obviously, when the choppers are in there to get my mate out. But um, to this day, you know, that things could have gone smoother, but that's just the nature of war and the nature of the fog of battle. I think we were very fortunate that particular day to get out. And when I say fortunate, I mean fortunate to only, only have one, one casualty, unfortunately. There could have been a lot more that particular day. So what had happened with the casualty? Was it more than being shot in his arm? He got hit in the arm and went straight through his heart and, and he, he was pronounced dead, unfortunately, and he got back to, to Terrancourt. That's tough. It was a major blow. It was a major blow. I'd known Jaren for a long time. I'd been in Iraq with him. I'd been at a barbecue before he came across with his family and stuff. So it's, you know, that's, that's hard to lose a friend and lose a mate and know that you're still in country for a number of months still um, and you've still got a job to do. You still have to go out. You still need to be in the right headspace because you're dealing with IEDs and people still trying to kill you every day. I mean, that, that, you know, that's tough. It's, you get back to base and 
there's a time for grieving, a time for reflection of that, and then you need to get on with the job because if you're not in the right headspace, you put everyone at risk, not just yourself, but your entire team. And how was the rest of the deployment? In all honesty, it felt like the handbrake was pulled on. We were ready to go back in again. And I wouldn't say, you know, go out there and seek justice or anything. We were like, these guys are here. We're here. Let's go out there. Let's clean them out. Let's have another hit out and clean the rest of this valley out. Um, And that didn't really happen. I mean, election time was coming up as well in September. So we were gearing up for that as well. And sure enough, we, you know, we had major contact on election day as well. And they attacked the base where we were a couple of times. And, you know, it was ongoing. The day that chopper came to get me directly across from where the platoon um, that was in the cutoff position, right in that location, a van full of civilians and children and kids was hit by an IED. And remember, there's a photo. One of the guys is crazy. He just happened to be taking a photo going, oh, I'm going home. Snapped it as it's detonated right when this van's gone over the top of it. Just fascinating that these guys are there and they're killing their own people as well. And, you know, and then blaming it on us. And it's, it's just, I wouldn't say fascinating, but it's devastating. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, you've been over to the Middle East on three deployments, two to Afghanistan, one to Iraq. How do you reflect on the contribution you made to the region, both yourself and the team? Well, I mean, that's a tough question. But I, in a way, I'm fortunate that I've, I've had a number of deployments. Now, I've certainly in Afghanistan, I can make that comment of, did it at that point in time change the lives of people that were there? And I can say that it did. I'm not just talking infrastructure programs. I'm saying from when I was there early on to going back again in 2010, kids happy, going to school, hospitals opened, you know, women back out and about on the streets. What we were doing there was making a difference. And I saw that. Was it worth the, the price that we had to pay? Unfortunately, that's what the politicians have to worry about. We signed up to head across and, you know, I'm happy to contribute whatever the government wanted me to contribute in. And, and if that's fighting in a war in Afghanistan on that, I know right now that if we weren't there, uh, if we weren't in places like Iraq and Afghanistan stemming the flow of terrorism, it would be in our back door. And I firmly believe that. I prefer to fight it overseas and fight it in our backyard. So that's how I look at it. It was worthwhile being there at, the, at that point in time. Unfortunately, I think it's not a, a great place at the moment and it's gone backwards again. What the solution is, people that get paid more than a smarter than me can, can work that out in the future. But it's, you know, it's unfortunate that the, the price is so high for freedom, but it is because freedom is worth it. On the 1st of November 2012, you're awarded the third Victoria Cross for Australia, the 99th Australian overall to receive a VC. Before we talk about that day specifically, that was over two years since the battle you were awarded those actions for. Did you know an award was in the works or was it a very late surprise? Look, it was strange two years later on. There was a lot of lot of talk still. And in all honesty, I'd, I'd already made the decision prior to going on that deployment that I was getting out after that. For me, that was over the 10-year mark. All the rest was time to, to move on. And I ended up seeking employment in mining industry. It was a bit of a boom at that point in time. And instead of working over in Kalgoorlie, blasting as a shot fire in a gold mine. But, you know, two years later, it was a surprise. I remember getting a call and I was working the mines and it was a call from uh, the Chief of Army, as, as, you know, as everyone does. He gets a call from the Chief of Army two years after sort of getting out. And... Uh, he sort of go, you know, how are you going? All the rest of it asked me a few questions and I thought it was quite bizarre. He goes, you've been nominated for an award from Afghanistan two years ago. I'm like, okay, no worries. And sort of left it at that. And then I, it must have been not long after that, I got another call from him going, where are you? I've got the jet and I'm flying to Kalgoorlie to come and see you. I'm like, I'm at the mines working. Didn't tell me what it was about. I had no idea. And as, as you do, your mind starts wandering. Like, okay, I've been, so he said I was nominated for something, but now... He's coming to see me personally. I'm like, I'm in trouble. I've done something wrong. I've, you know what I mean? Like that's that's what I thought. Oh, thank God, goodness, I haven't signed. I haven't. I'm on, I've been able for the last two years. They've come. They're coming to get me. Or I had no idea what was going on. Um, and he jumps off the plane, and, and I'm there at the Kalgoorlie airport, and he hands me a letter from uh, Stephen Brady at the time. So it was the Governor General's secretary, and it was from behalf of the Queen, and it was for a nomination for the VC. So I'm, I was look. I was absolutely blown away. 
No, they didn't give me a whole heap of time to decide because I hadn't spoken to any of my team about it whatsoever. You know, that deployment finished, we all went our separate ways, whether it be postings or people getting out and hadn't had a chance to talk to anyone about it, how their thoughts were because me, to this day, I still don't think I deserve, you know, a Victoria Cross. Should I have been killed for what I did? Yeah, probably should have been shot and killed. But my actions, although they were mine to the idea of trying to save my team and all the rest of it is i suppose the outcome of that but i was just doing my job that day was it dangerous was it risky should i be dead yes but i still don't think that it's sort of worthy of a vc but other people and, and the process deemed that it was i nearly said no and not many people realize that as i nearly turned it down on the spot but then i thought well the story needs to get told as well it wasn't just me that was there. There's a whole team of guys out there, a combat team of labs, of engineers, of snipers, of everyone else, and they did an exceptional job, and their story needs to be told as well. So I think there's a bit of pressure there from defence as well. I think that's how they do it. They, they don't give you a lot of time to, to decide. And uh, look, it was a tick and flick boxes and a sign and a signature, and that was it. I suppose the rest is history now. And, and I was told not to tell anyone whatsoever, and the investiture occurred in Canberra. You're also doing it on behalf of the regular army because Mark Donaldson, Ben Robert Smith, SASR, late Cameron Baird after you, 2nd Commando Regiment. So you're also representing the regular army, which makes your award stand out a bit. Uh, I don't think it makes it stand out. It's um, different from the other three. You're representing a different body. Yeah, well, it was all different. I mean, it's different different circumstances and situations. And look, I've become, you know, I've become friends with the other guys as well. And Doug and Kay as well, I speak to them occasionally as well. And it is, unless you've been through it and I wouldn't say the combat side, there's plenty of guys out there I reckon have, probably haven't been recognized for stuff that probably should be. And then that's my personal opinion. But to go through that, the process of then receiving it, the investiture and all the rest of it, you know, there's, there's not many of us that have been through that. It is, it's life-changing without a doubt. And there's good and bad to that. You know, none of us know that it ourselves. I think that's the best part as well as your peers deem that you've done something and they put you forward for it. So you have no say in that whatsoever. That's, I suppose that's a positive from what it is. Talk me briefly through what you do beyond the military. Me? Okay, right now. So I'm going to skip forward a few years because I, you know, I was in the mines and the rest of it got out, came back. So I'm living in Brisbane now in Queensland and uh, look, I'm actually at school again at the moment. So I'm currently doing my executive master's in business uh, and I'm doing that through QUT. So it's, you know, in there for a few days studying and I'm oh, this new, well, first year down, goodness. So... Only another 12 months, 14 months to go. So I'm doing that at the moment. I'm, I'm working defence industry still. So I'm currently working for Australian Defence Apparel. So we lead all the low courage uh, combat ensembles and stuff. So it's, it's a good place for me to work and it's a good fit for me at the moment. I do enjoy that, having to say occasionally in, in some of the, the future projects for our equipment and, and looking after our soldiers is, is what's important to me and to have that ability to do that. And I suppose the VC in a way is giving me that opportunity to make those connections to work in that realm. So I'm thankful for that. And you're a council member on the Australian War Memorial. I am look, very fortunate, um, very fortunate to be on the wall i love that place my vc or the the actual the original is on display there and well it has now the largest display of vcs i think at last count there was uh 85 i could be wrong i should probably know i think on display there at the moment which is out of the 100 is, is significant that we've got but i really do enjoy that position and the council or the australian war memorial you know it's a great place of healing as well and i i'm very fortunate as i said to, to be able to take part in that and, and some of the projects that they have dan i asked you what the victoria cross meant to you in 2009 now you've been the recipient of one for six years. What does the VC mean to you today and what do you think it means to the public? To me, look, it means, again, it's acknowledgement from your peers and your mates. Look, it's, it's not as easy as us because everyone thinks it's, you know, you're awarded something. And in a VC, it, it is, it's, it's life-changing, absolutely life-changing. I probably wouldn't be studying now, wouldn't be doing work-wise what I'm doing now as well. So it's completely upended and changed my life in that regard. In a way, it's given you a, a public profile that I don't think any of us asked for is an expectation that you behave a certain way, which is fine. And the expectation that you do certain things as well. So look, there's a lot of pressure. Part of the award itself is to uphold the standard of, and the tradition of, of some of the individuals, impressive individuals that have been awarded over the years as well. So there's, there's a lot there that people don't, I suppose, understand and realize that goes with it of, of being a recipient. 
And that's challenging. It's absolutely challenging. Public's point of view, I mean, it's, it is still, it's the highest award in Australia in the Commonwealth Honours and Awards System. So they don't hand them out all that often. And, and it's for, I suppose, acts of bravery in the face of the enemy. And I am very fortunate that I'm, that I'm alive, one, to talk about it and share my experiences. And it's not just mine, as I said. It's about remembering the mates that served with me from the 6th Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment. And I'll even mention the cab guys as well and the engineers and everyone else because it wasn't just me there that day. So it gives me the opportunity to be someone that can speak about great things that defence are doing around the world. And, you know, I didn't sign up to be a spokesperson for that, but um, I do believe in, in what they're doing and, and will always put the men and women first of the Defence Force. You talked about having to uphold the values of the Victoria Cross. Do you feel like the public has made you personally a symbol or do you just wear one on the left side of your chest? I'm not sure what it is. You know, goodness, I'm not a hero. Look, I'm just doing my job. None of us, none of us think like that. But people, I suppose, people want heroes out there still. People want people to look up to. And again, you know, none of us sort of ask for that. It's just part of what it is. And, you know, that takes a bit to, to come to terms with. And it's taken a bit, bit of time for me. And I wouldn't say I'm still used to it yet. And you said it six years on. I'm, you know, I'm still finding my way through that as well. For anyone listening to your story today, Dan, if they were to learn one lesson, take away one thing, what would you want it to be? For me, I suppose the biggest lesson out of this is back yourself, believe in yourself. We're all, I suppose, capable of achieving remarkable things. And you truly are. And, and you need to believe in yourself to be able to do it. It goes a long way regardless of, you know, yep, of course you need some background and training and everything else, but if you believe in yourself and have a go, it'll get you most of the way. Daniel Kieran, VC. It's been an honour. Thank you for having me in your home and for speaking with me today. Cheers. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Dan Kieran, VC. You can connect with Dan on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Dan Kieran, VC. You can also connect with this podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. On the website, you can also sign up for our e newsletter. This is the first episode of season three. Over the course of this season, we will release a conversation with an Australian military veteran every Tuesday. Some Fridays, we will also have bonus episodes, chats with veterans of another country, historians, authors, those working in the veterans community, you name it. Make sure you're subscribed in your podcast app to get all content, and keep up to date through the newsletter and our social media. You can subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. We have so many great Australian stories to tell, brought to you by myself, Angus Horden, Thomas Kay, Sharon Maskeldare, and Rohan Viswalingam of Thistle Productions. If you enjoyed my conversation with Dan Kieran VC, please leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us reach more people to spread these inspiring Australian stories of service and sacrifice. And if you're discovering us more recently, go and check out our previous episodes. We've already released over 100 podcasts. And if you want to hear more stories about the Victoria Cross, check out number 36, Mark Donaldson VC, for my conversation with Mark, and the season two bonus episode, The Commando's Father with Doug Baird, for my conversation with the father of the late Cameron Baird, VC, MG. My warm thanks go to Dan for coming on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>